Hello and welcome, my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. Welcome to a very special segment of our daily devotional. This is a two for today. So we're going to cover the daily devotional from yesterday and the daily devotional for today. So what we're going to do is we're going to cover the two verses of the day and then we're going to cover our section from John. So our daily, uh, so we're going to do our verse of the day segment and then we're going to do our through the Bible in one year segment. Oh, we're going to combine them all as one. <coughs> so our first verse of the day comes from Nahum 1, 7 through 15. And it says, The Lord is God, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in Him, but with an overwhelming flood, He will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue His foes into the realm of darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, He will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. They will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. For you, Nineveh, has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and devises wicked plans. This is what the Lord says. Though they have allies and are numerous, they will be destroyed and pass away. Although I have afflicted you in Judah, I will not afflict you anymore. Now I will break your their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the images and idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave for your vile. Look there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. So the Lord is good. He saves and cares for those who trust in Him. So what this means, He will put an end to His foes and those who trouble His so God had earlier used Assyria to afflict his people as discipline for their sin. But he now will flood Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria, with judgment and in their rebellious schemes. So the one who comes forth properly refers to the king of Assyria, and also called the great king, as we find that reference in 2 Kings 18.19 and Hosea 5.13. So as great as he might be, he is no match for God. God simply commands and judgment will fall. The king's legacy will be erased, and his idols will be destroyed. And God will prepare his grave. So echoing Isaiah 52, 7, Nahum speaks the end of Nineveh as the good news of peace. It will enable Judah to worship God once again without oppression. Through Jesus' death on the cross, our greatest enemies have been defeated. Those greatest enemies are sin, death, and the devil. 
So this is truly good news, right? So as Christian Gibbons said, free to worship. In me um, is right. The Lord is good indeed. So the Bible readings you need to do to go along with this particular verse of the day. First Samuel 15 through 16. John 8, 1 through 20. Psalm 110, 1 through 7. And Proverbs 15, 8 through 10. So that was the daily devotional for Saturday, March the 14th. The first day, excuse me. Now we're going to move into the first of the day for today. Which comes from another obscure prophet. Which would be Habakkuk. This one is going to come from Habakkuk chapter 2. Verses actually 214, but the entire passage we're going to look at is 6 through 20, which says, Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion? How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey, because you have plundered many nations. The peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, <coughs> sending his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, and shaming your own house, and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out, and the beams of the woodwork will echo. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed, and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire? The nations exhaust themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So that's, so that's verse 14, which is our actual verse for today. So now we're moving to verse 15. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wine skin till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You'll be filled with shame instead of glory. Now when you return, drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and his grace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you. <clears throat> For you have shed human blood, you have destroyed lands and cities, and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman, or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation, he makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, and to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it, can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver, there is no breath in it. The Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth be silent before him. 
So, verses 6 through 20. In this chapter in the book of Habakkuk represent a taunt or a statement of ridicule that will be used one day by Babylon's enemies because that is who Habakkuk is talking about here. He's talking about Babylon. So in Naomi, we're talking about Assyria. Now we're talking about Babylon. Assyria was before Babylon. Babylon came after Assyria. So certain is the doom of Babylon that Habakkuk is assured that future victims will be able to say these same words. So this two-part taunt breaks down further into a series of five woes or pronouncements of sorrow or consequences for ungodly actions that describe the judgment that will come on all those whose desires are not upright. So such people will be punished because of their aggression, they'll be punished because of their injustice, they'll be punished because of their violence and crime, they'll be punished for their immorality, and they'll be punished for their idolatry. So all of those should sound vaguely familiar, right? Because we live in a world full of aggression, we live in a world full of injustice, we live in a world full of violence and crime, we live in a world full of immorality, and we live in a world full of idolatry. So all the stolen goods and forced labor that Babylon used to build its empire will finally cry out against it. That's verses 11 and 12. So the Lord will shame Babylon and do to that nation what it did to others. That's verse 16. <coughs> so the future destruction of this once proud and mighty nation will bring even greater glory and honor to God whose great power will become known throughout the world. That's verse 15. But this all breaks one important question. What does this have to do with us living now? What does this passage from an obscure prophetic book in the Old Testament have to do with us now. And the answer to that is very simple. The same doom that came to Babylon and its empire awaits any nation that chooses to follow the same path that they did. So this passage is not just a prophecy regarding the fate of Babylon, right, but it is a word of warning to every other nation on earth to turn away from their wicked ways and to turn back towards God. And so what you need to read today to have you caught up with your daily Bible readings is First Samuel 17, 1 through 18, 4, John 8, 21 through 30, Psalm 111, 1 through 10, and Proverbs 15, 11. So that will get you all caught up with your daily Bible readings. So now that we are done with that, we can now turn to our passages in John. We can turn to our through the Bible in one year segment. So we're going to be covering we will be covering First, give me just a minute. We will be covering.
we will be covering John Chapter 6, starting in verse 25, and we're going to be going through verse 60, so we're going to break this, uh, verse 9, excuse me, and we're going to break this down section by section so that we can have a really good understanding of what is going on here. So when we last left off, Jesus had just walked across the water, and walked across the Sea of Galilee, and he had gone to, and he had gotten into the boat with his disciples, and had gone to the city of Capernaum, and the people that he had fed followed him there in hopes of either seeing a repeat of that miracle or making him king. They thought they were going to see him make see him make him king or see a repeat of that miracle, right? So now we're going to start, so this is the third scene in John chapter 6, right? So the first scene was Jesus feeding the 5,000, the second scene was Jesus walking on the water. This third scene is Jesus' discussion with these, with this group of people starting in John chapter 6, verse 25. So we're going to go for uh, John chapter 6, verse 25 through 29. Which says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. To believe in the one he has sent. So this theme of of Passover and the Exodus imagery, right, which has been the overarching theme throughout chapter 6, which includes matter and grumbling, continues. So Jesus has commenced the f in the following discussion with the crowd, draw out the spiritual implications of the feeding miracle he had just performed. So the discussion is moved forward by questions and statements from the crowd. Jesus knew they sought him because of the feeding miracle. In other words, they wanted to be fed again because they had been fed physically. They sought him out again, not because they had been fed spiritually. So he wanted them to not be so concerned about working for physical food that that they failed to receive <coughs> eternal life. So the crowd picked up on the word work. And the one work God requires is to believe in the one whom he has sent. So now we're going to pick up in verse 30 and we're going to go through verse 33. 
And when she says, then they, so they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So the crowd responded to Jesus' invitation to believe by requesting that he prove himself, right? So the, some of the crowd were probably not present at the feeding because they pointed to the manna their ancestors ate in the wilderness. So what this group of people was saying was that Moses proved himself by providing manna. So what this, uh, so... What they were saying was Moses proved himself by providing manna. How are you going to approve yourself? And so Jesus corrected their misunderstanding as to the source of the manna. So this so manna did not come from Moses. It came from God. So the bread from heaven, which is Jesus, is superior to the wilderness manna because it is life-giving. And Jesus made numerous references to coming down, coming down from heaven throughout this discussion. So, Jesus's So, the crowd's request that Jesus give them this bread from heaven is reminiscent So we gotta pick up in verse thirty-four, and we're gonna take it through verse forty, right? Which says, "Sir, they said, always give us this bread." Then Jesus declared, "I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of Him who sent me." This is the will of him who has sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. So the crowd's request that Jesus give them this bread from heaven is reminiscent to the woman's request for living water that we saw earlier, right, that we saw in John chapter 4. So Jesus responded by declaring himself to be the bread of life. So this is the first of Jesus' seven I am statements that are recorded here in John's Gospel. So Jesus' use of the phrase I am would have caused his audience to immediately think of God's name as given in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14. So Jesus promised to satisfy their deepest hunger and thirst if they would come to him. 
wants to put their faith and trust in him. Even though the crowd saw his miracles, they refused to believe in him. Everyone the Father gives to his Son will believe in Jesus, and he will never drive away. And again, we see that Jesus keeps making repeated references to this last day throughout this discourse or discussion. So now let's look a little bit more in depth at these last three verses. So that's verses 37 through 40, which say, right, uh, 37, All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. So, no matter who you are, or where you have been, or what you have experienced in life, or have done in life, Christ will accept you if you come to him in humility. Jesus promises, promises is the key word there, to welcome all who come to him in true repentance and faith, which basically means those who trust in him too enough to admit and turn from their simple ways and then entrust the leadership of their lives to him. So those who come to Jesus do not come on their own power, rather they come in response to the grace God has given to them. Now let's talk a little bit about God's will. So God's will is his desires and plans based on his character and purposes. Therefore it is important to understand the relationship of God's will to human responsibility and to understand this relationship we need to understand three very important things. The first thing is it is not God's will that any believer should turn from a commitment to him and fall away from grace, which means separating him or her, separating him, his or herself from God. So for that matter, it's not God's will that any individual <coughs> should perish or fail to accept the truth that can save them from spiritual death. So that's the first thing. The second thing is there's a great difference between God's perfect will and his permissive will. So his perfect will is what he desires and his permissive will is what he allows because of our choices. So God does not take away or deny the human responsibility to repent and trust Christ even if it means that so many people will reject him and miss his perfect will for their lives. And the last and final thing we've got to understand is God's plan and desire is to raise his people up at the last day, which is to bring their bodies to life in a way that, will, that, that our bodies will live forever with Christ. Right? And so his desire to do that does not release us from the responsibility of obeying his word and following him now. For those who continue to obey and follow him, death 
cannot destroy the life that Christ gives. So now we're going to pick up in verse 41, and we're going to take it through verse 42, which says, At this the Jews there began to grumble about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? So the crowd's grumbling here. It's again reminiscent of the people of Israel's murmurings or grumblings in the wilderness. And you say that in Exodus 16, verses 8 through 9. So just as they had complained about Moses, so just as the people of Israel complained about Moses, who was the first giver of bread, the first bread giver, they complained against Jesus, who is the true bread from heaven. So they did not understand how Jesus could say he came from heaven when they knew his father, which would be his earthly father, Joseph, and his mother, Mary. So while Joseph here is mentioned by name, Mary again is only referred to as Jesus' mother. You see, Mary is never, Mary's name was never specifically mentioned in John's Gospel. So Mary is never mentioned <coughs> by name in John's Gospel. So now we're going to pick up in verse 43. I'm going to go through verse 51. <coughs> which says, Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. <coughs> but here's the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. So Jesus responded to the crowd's grumbling by warning them that no one can come to him unless the Father draws them. He stated the truth of God's initiative and salvation by pointing to Isaiah 54, 13. Those who accept the Father's teaching will come to or believe in Jesus. Those who are taught by God, so that's the phrase, taught by God, refer to those who believe in Jesus. That's only Jesus the Son has seen the Father, and since he alone came from the Father, the people should believe his words. 
Jesus, again, the stress, the necessity of believing if one is to receive eternal life. <coughs> Jesus continued by contrasting the living bread, the manna, uh, with the manna for which they longed, which these people longed to get their hands on. Right? <coughs> So the contrast could not be any greater. Those who ate the manna in the wilderness died. Right, so they ate the manna and yet they still died. But those who eat the bread from heaven will not die. They will receive eternal life. And Jesus would soon give his life for the world. That's what Jesus was saying there. So the world here refers to those who are in opposition to God and under the dominion of Satan. So those for whom Christ died, which is everyone in the world, do not deserve the benefits of salvation in and of themselves. And so his words, Jesus' words here, indicate that his death would be both voluntary and substitutionary. Now we're going to pick up in verse 52, and we're going to go through verse 59, which will take us to the end of this particular scene in John's Gospel. Here's what it says. Then the Jews begin to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. So whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood uh, remains in me and I in them, just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. So the crowd argued among themselves about how Jesus could give them his flesh to eat. So Jesus' words here about eating the Son of Man's flesh and drinking his blood are very difficult to interpret. So it's best to interpret them as referring to the same idea brought out earlier, which is <coughs> that consuming Christ is the equivalent to trusting in Christ. So the results of eating and drinking are eternal life and being raised up on the last day, which are the same results that those who come to Christ receive. The same results that those who come to Christ receive. So Jesus used this 
graphic language to describe the total commitment of his followers to him. And again, biblical authors often use images of eating and drinking in references to spiritual realities. And at some point in time during this discussion, there appears to have been a change in location because this section ends by saying he said this while teaching in a synagogue in Capernaum. So they moved from the shore to the synagogue. So now, so now we're going to deal with verse 44 in detail. So what is verse 44? What's that verse? So special about that verse, right? So verse 44 is the one that says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. Right? So the Father draws people to Jesus through the Holy Spirit who opens people's minds to God's truth. So the Holy Spirit convinces the, the consciousness of these people of the presence of sin in their lives and their need for God. So that's part of the work of the Holy Spirit. Gotta understand that. So God's invitation goes out to all people. As Jesus says in John 12, 32, I will draw all men. And when we use the word men, he's not just referring to those that are biologically men. He's referring to all mankind. Every person that is a human being. Which, by the way, is every person on the earth. But this offer does not mean we must accept God's invitation. We can reject God's invitation if we so choose to reject God's invitation. So this shows us the importance of responding to God's Spirit. So if we ever sense something drawing us to God, it is a very dangerous thing to resist because we cannot bring ourselves to Him whenever and however we please. Right? So we have to be open and mindful <coughs> to the leading and the promptings of the Spirit. We must remember that we can respond to God only by His grace, which is His undeserved favor and His undeserved merit in our lives. And so we will pick up from here tomorrow as we finish up chapter 6 with this third and with this excuse me fourth and final scene from John chapter 6 and so in order for you to be prepared for that here's the readings that you must do you must read 1st Samuel 18 verse 5 through 19 verse 24 you must read John 8 31 through 59 you must read Psalm 112 1 through 10 and Proverbs 15, 12 through 14.